This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of finance and energy. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with two experts on North America Power, Chad Singleton in Austin, and Sam Huntington in the Boston area. Sam, Chad, how are you all? Doing well. Good. Good. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I think this is the first time for for, for both of you on the the podcast, so so welcome and thank you for joining. We've been trading emails over the past couple uh, days or weeks about, um, you know, North America Power and heading into August, uh, you know, generally a very hot month uh, across the U.S. and and obviously August um, is memorable to to, to us from a power perspective, given last year's um, couple of days, um, not not even full days, but but a couple of days of uh, a couple of rolling blackouts in in California. Um, And then this year has been particularly kind of interesting or extreme with that heat dome over the Pacific Northwest. Um, and temperatures, um, you know, just more, more broadly in the U.S. kind of stressing power markets. So we wanted to to have a conversation about really what to look for uh, and what to expect as we head into August with some of the focus on California um, and then thinking longer term about these kind of extreme weather events and, and how the, uh, the the North America grid in particular prepares for that. So, so maybe just to kind of frame things, you know, we, we did do a podcast last year with, with uh, Wade and Doug on uh, the, the California event right after it happened, um, but but Chad, if if we you know just kind of back off and look over the past twelve months, inclusive of you know even what happened in Texas with the the I think it was February March freeze, um, you know what should we consider uh, abnormal weather uh, increasingly normal, and how should we look at this from from a power perspective? Yeah, I mean I, I think from the power markets, uh, I mean what you're looking at here is, I mean we, right now we do have the benefit of uh, you know there, there's been a couple postmortems since then, and I mean I think the the, the two biggest ones in recent memory are, are as you mentioned uh, the uh, the heat wave induced uh, uh, blackout California uh, last August and uh, the uh, ERCOT freeze in February, uh, and you know it's like I think there's there's been a lot of um, you know kind of tossing blame around, um, you know, be just looking at, you know, uh, on paper, you know, what technologies, you know, failed to deliver and which ones didn't. But, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit more, uh, you know, systemic than those. And I, I, I think, you know, a lot of this is really rooted in, in market design and, and, uh, you know, how these tariffs are actually written and if they're actually adapting to, you know, what's happening. Um, you know, as, as far as you know, whether or not you know, uh, increasingly abnormal weather, you know, if, if that's you know become the new normal, um, you know, without getting you know, too political on it, I, I, I would say, you know, one thing I think is safe to say is, is when you're looking at the energy transition and you look where its roots are, I think what's happening right now um, was always kind of in the DNA there. Um, you know, you what kind of kicked off the green revolution and energy transition movement was really a concern for climate change. Um, 
but you know i think it was always kind of uh, you know hidden in there that you know with this change it wasn't like we were going to you know set up uh you know a bunch of wind farms and solar plants under a you know normal set of conditions because it was you know rooted in concern for climate change there was always kind of this baked in idea that yeah it's going to be weather's going to be really different as we're putting in these you know variable energy resources so you know it was always kind of there that there was sort of this twofold challenge um, and that shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody that, that that those are both kind of you know coinciding and are sort of on a a bit of a collision course but i think that's you know why we're seeing this now and we're kind of seeing more of a this shift towards a uh, you know, adaptive approach towards climate change rather than a preventative approach now. And like, mm -hmm. I think that's a an economy wide story, but it's becoming very, you know, apparent in in what's going on with the power grid right now. So I mean, I, I'd probably leave it at that of, of kind of how I've seen the last you know 12 months, especially play out. When the, you know, in response specifically to that, the, the, the California events that there was a um, kind of a, a root cause analysis published recently looking at um, Kaiso, which is the the operator of the of the California grid, where, where they listed no single kind of fault, but three three main contributors. The first being weather, which seems somewhat obvious and, and almost somewhat uh, discouraging because one cannot really control the the, the weather. The, the other one being planning, um, and and uh, I guess. Uh, but resource adequacy, I think, is the word used, and then market practices, and uh, um, I guess that's that that market setup that, that you described. I and mean, when we look at it from a planning perspective, you know, are, are there quick actions that, that folks can 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 take, or that we can look to to be perhaps implemented uh, heading into to this August? Yeah, and, and I think, um, and, and and Sam can probably talk much more detailed on this uh, than I can. But but conceptually, I'd say it's like. You know, these these markets, you know, they're 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 all kind of their own laboratories, right? And they, they all kind of have their own approaches and seeing what works best. And I think uh, what happened in ERCOT and what happened in Kaiso were a little idiosyncratic with how each one is designed. I'd say, you know, with what happened in Kaiso, and I, I can totally see the the planning perspective, and it's where where, where Kaiso's you know, kind of planned out, you know, like a market, and I mean, it is a market, but there are some kind of administrative idiosyncrasies there that really may not provide you know the most real-time information of what say you know the the capacity credit for you know a solar plant might be and that's kind of in more of a long-term perspective and then in a shorter term perspective you know they're looking at the day ahead and then there's there's a day ahead market and then a real-time market and and each one kind of you know it's 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 kind of closing that interval in until you're actually in real time and you know it's like what we're seeing with 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 Kaiso in particular is that you know, most of the the planning mechanisms, whether they're a year out or a month out or you know within 24 hours, have in the past kind of not really uh, helped the system out much in terms of of prepping, and it usually came down to the wire in terms of emergency measures for Kaiso to recover and and mitigate the uh, the blackout as much as possible, but. With that said, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, this is where I think Sam has, has really you know, examined this pretty carefully, too. Yeah, so so maybe just stepping back, you know, for a second and, and thinking about your first question or addressing your first question about extreme weather. You know, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, with a lot of this extreme weather, um, you know, especially 
exemplified in, in the two big incidents in, in ERCOT and CAISO is that the threats to power system reliability are becoming a bit more multi-pronged or multifaceted. So I think you know people are generally aware that weather affects electricity demand, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and constrain re- the reliability of the grid. You know, when a big heat wave happens, everybody turns on their AC. You know, this is generally what mo- most power systems plan around, or like the hottest day of the year. So that's sort of like the conventional mindset. I think what we're starting to see now is that with really extreme weather, it's affecting not just the demand side, but also the supply side. Uh, and that happened in both ERCOT in winter and then you know last summer in California. And it, it's certainly, I think, what uh, we should be planning around uh, in California this summer. Uh, and so just to unpack that you know a tiny bit more, in last summer's heat wave in California, you know we had heat driving really extreme uh, demand peaks with everybody turning on their, their AC. But then you also had at the same time the heat leading to a lot of these old gas plants, you know, leading them to either derate the capacity mm-hmm. that they could offer to the grid, or in some cases causing them to just shut off entirely. Uh, you know because I don't know some sensor or uh, you know gas line wasn't wasn't prepared to deal with the heat. And very derate. Similar- Sorry, yep. sorry, no, but, but derate, the, the, that, that means basically that the, the gas plant isn't able to operate as efficiently as it normally would due to uh, the, the, the gas's response to the extreme heat. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the you know, CAISO, the, the system operator will, you know, has like an internal rating for each of these plants okay. um, the, that they're depending on when they think about their, their forecasts. So if it's, you know, maybe it's a hundred megawatt plant, the way that they measure those the ability of a plant to provide that, the way that they rate that, is generally, you know, is during ambient, is like, nor, just during normal weather conditions. So it's like six, they measure it at like 60 degrees Fahrenheit, their performance. But, you know, the problem is when we really need it is during, you know, is during this extreme weather and the performance is not the same at you know, 100 degrees Fahrenheit or, or, or even higher than it is at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's, you know, that's just another example of one of these sort of mismatches and how we and how we're planning that we're going to have to correct i think going forward dealing with more of this extreme weather when i think if i recall from last year the the, the big uh incident i think it was august 14th was you know about an hour-long surprise or something and it was right around 7 p.m as solar came down and one would have expected the wind to come up and the wind didn't come um, and then with that derating of the natural gas that there wasn't enough I suppose, backup in the system to, to work. I mean, is that it would seem fairly straightforward to, to plan if one were to plan around 100 degrees rather than 80 degrees, that seems fairly straightforward to, to implement is where's the what, what am I missing? I don't think you're missing anything. I think that is <laughs> very much one of uh, it does seem straightforward. Um, I, I think, look, I think in practice, it's that means a lot of changes, right? I mean, I think, okay. that, you know, you could be increasing the amount of resources, you know, just making one little change like that, you know, if all of a sudden you you lose 10% of your capacity or something because of the, the way you're measuring it, um, you know, that could be a pretty sudden shock to the market and, and maybe you, you know, need to go get a whole bunch of resources really quick. But no, I mean, I, fundamentally, I don't think you're you're seeing it incorrectly. It, it, some of these some of these fixes are relatively simple. Um, and, you know, in some ways it is a little surprising why they haven't been implemented sooner. In, in chat, is some of that maybe 
that, that if it is simple to plan around 100 degrees is perhaps the investment not there that it's one needs to develop more capacity in, in order to, to adequately plan around, plan around 100 versus 80? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I think there's kind of once you once you implement those, there's there's a number of things that kind of change in terms of the plan in terms of planning. So, yeah, one of them is that, hey, if we kind of have better visibility on, you know, what which plants are are, are more likely to fail, you know, probabilistically, yeah, incentivizing more just just firm capacity uh, to be put there, whether that's, you know, in the form of batteries or in the form of um, uh, backup generators or, or, or even gas plants. Um, but that's, you know, that, that kind of gets into another area with with California because they're, they're trying to you know, avoid new gas capacity as much as possible. So but the point being is, yeah, looking into, you know, what the ultimate demand, you know, the true demand for firm capacity should be. So, yeah, it's like to, to Sam's point, it's like you know, when when you're using a you know pretty average weather probability as that percolates into all your other metrics and signals if if it's kind of on a false assumption of weather then you're 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 going to underplan so you know that's one aspect in terms of just longer term planning but yeah i mean e- even in the near term too uh, i mean being prepared for you know what kind of emergency measures that you have at your disposal is, you know, is 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 another question, um, and just building in those redundancies too. Like, let's say, you know, a wildfire does take out a major pathway into California, or you know, you have lower than expected hydro levels. Um, you know, it, it lets you know kind of what you need to do to to ensure yourself there um, in order to you know avoid that 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 whole uh, um, situation. So yeah, and I, I think the other thing that's that's kind of interesting around that, and I mean, kind of this question for for Sam too is, Kaiso's really been pushing to to kind of integrate as much as the Western interconnect as possible with the uh, energy imbalance market, and it's kind of designed to kind of cool off these emergency situations. But, you know, it's like I think we're seeing something really interesting here with a pretty broad scope and, you know, who's being affected by this heat wave. So I'm just kind of curious from Sam, too, of, I mean, what does, you know, what does that mean if, if you know, California can't buy on, on a neighbor like, a, you know, Arizona or, or Oregon for, for any number of reasons, they're dealing with their own blackouts, you know, uh, does that really kind of... Uh, put them in a bit of a, a bind here? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, imports is one of the the murkier but critical tools at, at Kaiso's disposal for keeping the lights on. So, you know, on a normal day, they share quite a bit of their power with their neighbors, generally receiving a lot of net imports from the, the Northwest uh, as well as the, the Southwest, um, but also wheeling a lot of power from the Northwest through California over to the southwest. But but when, you know, as Chad says, you know, when these big heat waves strike, you know, the southwest needs a lot of that power themselves and they may right. not want to send it all over to California. So you have they have you know California has less than unusual that it can rely on from its neighbors. And that's particularly true when these heat waves are so broad and widespread and, and basically affecting multiple regions at once, which is what we saw earlier this summer. So, I mean, we talk about planning being being somewhat easy, at least from kind of a, a decision making process. But but it seems like that there's a you know a scale of investment that that makes it a lot harder to, to implement. And 
there there was news in the paper today. Uh, I think PG&E was spending something like, is it $20 billion to, to put uh, transmission lines uh, underground on the, I guess the, the, the new analysis that it used to be too expensive to do is now it's too expensive not to do? It's an interesting case. Uh, I think it, you know, it gets to this point that, that Chad mentioned earlier about adaptation. You know, if we have limited dollars, you know, to spend on either climate change mitigation or adaptation, you know, I think there's a choice and maybe we're starting to see the trade-off here. You know, do we spend it on, for example, more transmission uh, to help facilitate decarbonization? You know, the more interconnected our grid is, the sort of easier it is to integrate renewables. Or do we spend it on sort of grid hardening and making those transmission lines, you know, less susceptible to provoking wildfires, which themselves are induced by climate change. So it's, it's the, this mitigation versus adaptation trade-off seems to be sort of coming to the forefront. Well, that seemed to be a theme as well in Texas with the ERCOT weatherization in February. That a lot of the, if I recall correctly, a lot of the power plants that went down had you know effectively no walls, right? That they just weren't prepared at all for the winter because Texas doesn't see those types of winters. So, so I, you know, I, I guess Chad, I mean, looking at those ideas, I mean, those are big projects that take many, many years, I would think, to to permit and actually execute, and lots and lots of dollars that I assume is borne by the ratepayers. Yeah, more or less. I mean, at the end of the day, though, I mean, it does get kind of you, you did hear these stories in ERCOT of you know somebody ending up with this you know these ridiculous power bills, but those were were, were kind of very on the fringe, exceptional if you were on a, a certain type of you know rate system. And, and and ERCOT is one of the few that actually has a deregulated retail market as well, so customers in ERCOT can kind of choose different you know whatever kind of rate system they like. You know the, the typical retail rate system was you know it would kind of would just average out that cost you know across the entire uh, uh, consumer base. So it was only very like, special instances where, you know, you, you would have, you know, your power bill, you know, completely wiping you out of money if you were a retail customer. Um, but, but I mean, on the ERCOT side, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up too, is, is I mean, I think it really, you know, highlights sort of those different idiosyncrasies of different markets, because I mean, ERCOT, the reasons it had its its issues were yes they were they were they were planning issues but I'd say it was a completely different animal than than what happened in Kaiso and I mean if you kind of bear with me for a second I'm getting a little philosophical here but then I kind of tie this back is uh, Go with you it. know there, there's <laughs> there, there there's there's kind of the concept of of you know there's reliable clean affordable energy and you see that you know pop up a lot. And it's in a way you can kind of think of that as if you were to boil down any power market, you could kind of boil down the tariff into those three categories of, you know, one part of the tariff is the affordability, which kind of represents the your energy tariff. There's cleanliness now, which is a big issue. So that's that kind of boils down to your renewable energy credit prices and premiums you're paying for that, as well as, you know, any kind of tax credits. You know, those are sort of another way that we're paying for the clean side. And but is, is reliability, which is you know what we're talking about in resource adequacy or forward capacity markets, in which it's more or less this type of a tariff is is more of like a an insurance payment of you know paying um, resources ahead of time, not for their performance per se, but just for their uh, insurance that they will be there and be online and ready to operate because you know you have plants that uh, you know 
they may be too expensive on a variable cost rate to, to clear the market. So they may not run, but you need to have that kind of reserve margin there. So they need some form of payment to compensate for all their fixed costs, their, their capital expenditure, so that they can stay open and that they don't shut down. And then they're there for reliability purposes. So it's it's very much kind of a an insurance kind of uh, mindset in that uh, reliability slash resiliency area. So, so what I'm getting at here is, is, you know, when you're looking at the energy transition, and I'm saying this just for the sake of, of understanding the trend, but, you know, just imagine that we we do get to this, you know, net zero carbon world, which pretty much implies that you're in, you're, you're, you're practically in a free energy world where, you know, you have electrons are free. The only thing you're really paying for at that point is, is steel in the ground, your, your, your capacity and your fixed cost. And, and it's really all CapEx and fixed O&M, right? So where I'm going with this is ERCOT is one of the few markets that they call themselves an energy only market where they don't actually have this kind of explicit reliability tariff or a capacity market or, or a resource adequacy uh, mechanism or anything like that. So, and I think that's at the fundamental root of what happened in ERCOT was that you have this trend towards more variable resources, more inclement weather, and, and ERCOT makes up for that lack of an explicit reliability mechanism by adding these huge premiums on top of your clearing power price. And it's called the uh, you know scarcity adder, and it's derived from this mechanism called the operating reserve demand curve. And so ERCOT's very unique and it has this. So it compensates for that, that extra reliability measure of those plants that may not operate by just paying them you know, up to $10,000 a megawatt hour on the energy market for those, those small chance times that they do operate, right? So what that means translates to is an hour to hour gamble basically on, um, you know, will I make enough money to, to stay open? And, you know, I better operate on those, those, those short hours that happen. But that sort of incentive system is, is a little odd um, with, uh, you know, it's, it's at odds with kind of the weather situation because now what kind of incentive do you really have to be proactive and spend capital on weatherizing your plant or, or any other preventative measures? So it's it's it, there's just a little bit of a, a a fundamental disconnect there that I think they're trying to solve for. One of the most recent steps was Texas, you know, passing a law saying that all you know facilities need to be weatherized, but it's still a very kind of you know prescriptive measure. Whereas you look at markets like PJM after they had kind of their disaster season with the bomb cyclone, polar vortex, you know, they've kind of been playing around with this idea of capacity performance, in which you they get a reward if you're performing during these stress intervals, um, if you perform better than the average of the entire fleet, and you get a penalty if you perform worse than the average fleet. So it's totally threat agnostic. It's just, you know, it, it allows for kind of creative incentives for uh, to compete actually in these during these stress intervals, intervals, right? So Texas really doesn't have any kind of mechanism like that. So sorry for the, for the long uh, uh, runaround there, but the point being is that Texas has a really unique situation on its hands, and it's also, I think, really uniquely set up to actually write a a you know kind of a new next generation type of tariff from scratch. Because you know where these other markets are kind of you know retinkering what what they already have, ERCOT still can be sort of a uh, a clean slate when they're thinking about reliability issues. So 
uh, that, that's kind of yeah, my, my piece on ERCOT. But <laughs> well, so if we're looking at at all of it, inclusive of you know, I, I guess any of the markets, um, you know, either U.S. Or, or outside of U.S. The last piece of that root cause was you know market practices within the the, the Kaiso analysis. Um, you know, given the signal to the, the needed signal to invest, and these are you know big dollars. I mean, is there a system that folks can look to as a model? To today, whether U.S. or elsewhere, and you know, I assume none of this is going to fix anything before August, which is eight days away, eight or nine days away. But you know, what should we be thinking about it in terms of you know, does somebody need to start with whiteboard, or can somebody look at something that's happening elsewhere? I mean, I would say it's kind of hard to say because I think all the, I think most capacity markets are all kind of in a state of flux right now. You know, if, if you were to look at PJM or, or even New England, they're really kind of in the in, in the midst of, of playing with those rules to, to make sure that, you know, we get like a really accurate price signal that incentivizes that that you know, type of investment. So and, and that's where it's like, I think this this whole debate is more than just, you know, purely financial. Like, I think it gets you know, at, at the core of it. It's really philosophical and it's like getting down to how do you actually deliver a a real-time commodity that can never fall out of balance despite the fact that you know you you have more and more variable um, resources coming and you have these these big kind of stress events that seem to be happening at more and more at, at higher frequencies now so it, it really kind of gets down to the root of you know toss aside you know the constructs that we've had for the last 20 years like what at its core will work and so that's kind of what i think is a bit hard and that's why i think ERCOT is 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 oddly enough kind of at an advantage there um, because they can think about that but uh, i'm curious too what, what, what sam thinks um because that's uh i think it's a really tough question i think it's something that everybody's really uh um you know struggling with honestly yeah I, well i think the the classic debate is between your your energy only markets on the one hand, your your ERCOTs of the world that don't have like a forward procurement mechanism for capacity, uh, and instead rely on price signals in the energy market alone to to drive investment. You know they let prices get super super high, uh, as they did during the during the outages. You know, and then the other paradigm is you know. These these capacity markets. Um, so so New England and PJM really exemplify this approach, where they run these auctions for capacity, you know, three years ahead of time, and you know therefore end up having a pretty clear view of you know what resources are going to be online, uh, and you know what levels of reliability they'll be capable of dealing with. You know if anything goes wrong with resources coming online, they've they've got a little more of a cushion time wise to address that. Now, the trade-off is, or, or sort of the outcomes there are that, or they had been at least, that um, you know, ERCOT had has kind of some of the cheapest power in the country, and you know, certainly some of that is attributable to the fact that they don't have this massive capacity market that they're spending lots of money on, right? And so for a long time, I think advocates pointed to that as as a good model. Downside is that they were operating on kind of thin margins and when you had this extreme weather come along they ran into outages and, and now everybody points the finger at them and then looks at this other model but pjm for example is you know has been able to keep the lights on but has also been operating with a massive excess of capacity 
So they have probably a little bit of what a lot of people would say was an overinvestment in, in, in reliability. Do people so, notice in do, do, do the residents of what, what is that Ohio, Pennsylvania, that those states, do they notice or is, or are there power bills within the band of tolerance for electricity? I think in general, they're much higher than bills in Texas. So, so yeah, I would think people notice to some degree, but, but there's, there's lots of factors that influence bills. I mean, that, that is just one of them. You know, my point is just that there's sort of a trade-off here in, in approaches. Um, you can overinvest in reliability or, or you can sort of underinvest in it. And uh, I think people are still trying to figure out what, what the right way to do it is. Yeah. And just to add that too, I think, I think one thing that also makes Burkhout a little bit unique is like in a lot of markets, reliability is, is kind of tantamount to you know what the objective function is like I'd, I'd actually been to a couple you know power conferences where they'd actually bring in speakers from the faa for you know flying because mm-hmm. not because the, the the industries are anything similar but they're both high reliability organizations and you have to function in a way that includes a lot of redundancy and contingencies and you know that could be viewed as waste but when it's like you know when in the case of airlines when you're dealing with something as precious as human life and in the power industry too and it's like when you have a blackout you know there's it's a high probability that somebody probably lose their life if uh you know if they're not in the best conditions if there's a blackout so you know that redundancy reliability you know that becomes the objective function you know with ERCOT, i'm not going to say that they've completely thrown redundancy and reliability by the wayside but it is definitely a an efficiency focused market. So you know what you get in return is yes, yeah, as Sam said, you know cheaper power. Plants, but you know you you may not get quite you know the redundancy and uh, you know the reliability you hope for. And yeah, it was kind of masked over the last ten years because ERCOT's experienced a ton of load growth and and and, and growth in demand. So that that kind of uh, covered this up a little bit. But um, when you have these big events, you know it kind of you know, exposes some of those flaws. It sounds like I mean belts and suspenders uh, comes to mind with, with, with a lot of this. It's just you know some some needed. Uh, I suppose, or the, the potential for, for redundancy. You see a lot of conversation on batteries or energy storage as particularly, a, you know, an efficient way perhaps to, you know, to, to build in this reliability, either at the kind of the, the top-down level or, or at the individual residence level, or both. And, and, you know, I'd, we, we've all seen the stories or heard the stories about, you know, increased sales of diesel generators, and, and there, there seem to be more and more uh, homeowners going out and taking matters into their own that they're, they're you know buying their own belts and suspenders so to speak and then then obviously there's the stories of you know i think the f-150s uh, that people had the new ones were used as generators uh, in uncertain houses and then i think ships in california that, that, uh, that the governor just approved some sort of weird stopgap that would allow ships to be used as backup generators i mean that, that seems to be very good short-term solutions. Should, should we think about it more in a long-term solutions where, where uh, residential consumers take more control of their power? Yeah. I, 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 so this is you know kind of getting into you know what is the what is the grid supposed to to be for you? And there's kind of a I think residential demand response in which they're kind of using. You know, they might back down your thermostat if you sign up for the program to help, you know, contribute. You know, those are all useful. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, distributed generation sources, whether whether it's a, a, a rooftop solar panel or a, a, a Ford F-150, <laughs> your, your choice, um, they're, they're all helpful. But I do think that that notion kind of there's a there's a point where where I, I don't really follow it anymore. And that's kind of to the point where it's like I've seen these kind of views where they talk about, well, like, let's gamify, you know, residential behavior, um, retail behavior, either by using like time of use prices where it's like, you know, before we were talking about an ERCOT, you know, you, you get all those costs get kind of, you know, levelized out across the base. You know, in a time of use situation, you would have a price spike at the retail level, you know, depending on the hour of the day, instead of having it all just kind of, you know, uh, levelized out. To me, they're a nice thought, but I really have a hard time there because I don't, other than energy nerds like the three of us who might be really interested in, in seeing that kind of data and participating, I don't think your average person really wants to be thinking about, you know, the the game they're playing with their thermostat all day or, or you know, if they're, you know, netting enough power into the grid, you know, whether it's like a vehicle to grid application mm-hmm. or a solar panel, you know, I don't think the, the average person really wants to be thinking about that. So it's like, if we can automate that type of thing, which I think that's coming, Sure, I, I can see that, but I don't, I, I really don't think the whole kind of behavioral aspect is really a long-term solution. And 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 this kind of opens up, you know, kind of another can of worms too with, with, with California. And I think Sam can kind of go into that more, but I mean, I guess one other point on that too is there is kind of this whole notion of, of microgrids, community microgrids, where it's like, you know, an, an, an insulated grid, basically, where the military's used it, they've used it on a bunch of public campuses, um, schools, hospitals and stuff, where it's literally a microgrid, they're all interconnected. You know, there's a couple backup generators, solar um, batteries, and you know, they, they basically, you know, can verify these transactions through, you know, some kind of blockchain application. And there's kind of the thought of scaling that out into, you know, what they would call like a cellular grid, where it's like, the grid, the bulk grid kind of becomes this quilt of all these little microgrids that can integrate or island off when there is a big, you know, weather resiliency event. So it, it, it entails everybody kind of, you know, participating in it. But I think you need that that kind of software investment, the automation forecasting to make that work in a realistic way. So I wanted to throw that out there. And I, I actually love talking about cellular grids. So sorry if I, I kind of smuggled that in too. But um but getting back to the California bit, and this is, I, mean, I think Sam could probably talk about a bit, is if these kind of conservation efforts where people, whether they're you know, generating a, a distributed uh, you know, solar plant, which is a bit easier, but you know, more so backing off, uh, you know, they get these flex alerts and they back off. It's like, are those going to be really, you know, how reliable are those? Are we going to get a little bit of fatigue from that, especially if there's a lot of perceived false alarms or even if it wasn't a false mm-hmm. alarm, you know, people don't you don't get like a piece of candy every time you you know back down your, your thermostat. So people could say like, you know, well, I backed off my thermostat. There's no blackout. So what gives? And then, on you know, on the sixth time, they're just going to be like, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't need to back off. I mean, nothing's happened so far. This kind of, you know, behavioral sort of uh, you know, psychological fallacy that, that, that I think any of us could be victim to. So, yeah, just kind of curious to on Sam if, uh, if you agree with that or, you know, it, so far it sounds like things have worked out well for Kaiso, but. Yeah, it's 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 definitely true that yeah the, the the response of consumers 
or the grid the grid operators are increasingly looking to consumers to sort of participate in the reliability of the system which i think gets to your point hill you know either through just conserving energy you know through these flex alerts that that chad mentioned that that kaiso is issuing basically asking for voluntary conservation or more explicitly by you know offering them incentives for example, to have their home batteries you know, discharge energy back into the network mm -hmm. uh, to, to shore up the grid supply during critical peak hours. I mean, that's you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find someone that would be like against that idea. Uh, I think the the challenge there is is more of an equity one than like a technical one. Bat home batteries are are very expensive. It's not something that everybody can afford at this point. So if we're going to have more of a distributed grid, uh, which would certainly be more resilient, uh, probably more reliable, have various types of benefits. But you know, we need to ask how much money we want to invest in that. Are we going to pay people to have batteries? If we are, who are we going to pay? How much? Uh, is it just the, you know, the people that can afford them that are going to be able to have them? You know, does that mean it ends up other lower-income folks who who can't afford yeah. these batteries are are paying more for the grid. Then, so there's there's some complicated you know sort of uh, policy questions to address uh, as we move toward that that future. Though, I think a lot of people would agree that it's you know a desirable place to move to. Yeah, uh, and that that type of question has come up on, on several of these podcasts that we've done as we talk about some of these uh, kind of lower carbon initiatives and and, and how. Uh, how one balances equity uh, with those other three priorities of reliability uh, or the reliability, cleanliness, and there was one more chat. Uh, affordability. affordability. Yeah, I guess that's in there in the equity. So, well, just uh, maybe just to wrap things up, it sounds like uh, it's we can go into August with uh, you know some some learnings uh, of last year and, and earlier this year, but but not necessarily a, a whole lot of new practices or investment that that will uh, change perhaps the outcome should we encounter similar you know similar extreme weather over the next you know four to six weeks or later. You know, if we're thinking longer term, um, you know, and back to kind of the theme of the podcast, you know, where 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 do you think the the, the more likely investment signal is going to be seen first at the residential level, where where people there's investment in batteries and or other activity that allows us to to make purchases at the residential level, or at the top down kind of PGE level um, to to just pick a name at the utility level that helps to address some of these uh, either interconnected needs or transmission line needs or whatever it is. If you guys, you know, just look into your crystal balls, Chad, I'll start with you and we'll go to Sam. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think for the foreseeable future, I do think um, it will be from, you know, more of the top down level. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's companies, you know, really looking into this and really trying to affect, you know, the, the retail side and yeah, they've been able to to deploy platforms and and you know and, and kind of get these out to people. But it's it's I, I, I feel that you know the real material changes that have happened have come from kind of that top down, very you know kind of structured view. So I'm not I'm not you know saying that the investment on the retail side you know won't make a difference. But I think you know the real movers and shakers are going to be those you know that are coming from the regulatory bodies as well as you know just general innovation and technology 
and uh, just our our ability to forecast, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, is is going to be huge. So I think I, I do think it's really you know pretty top down when it comes to uh, that those investment dollars. Sam, you agree? Yeah, I would largely agree. I mean, you know, for better or worse, our our grid is still largely centralized, right? Um, it's not as distributed as um, I guess some people might like or might like might might like to imagine. Um, so, and we and we've seen you know already seeing actions from the California regulatory regulatory authorities to shore up the the centralized uh, you know, generation fleet, uh, both through emergency procurement orders this summer. Uh, to try and bring more resources online, or at least get more commitments from uh, existing resources, uh, as well as you know large procurements over the next you know three four years to to really shore up the supply um, as as further resources retire. So so definitely more on the centralized side is where the investment is coming from. But that said, there are some interesting things happening at the distributed level. California is offering. You know, fairly generous incentives for home home batteries and solar, and interestingly, they're they're targeting those initiatives in locations where uh, transmission lines may need to be shut off to avoid wildfires. Mm-hmm. So we've had this you know issue where they have to depower entire transmission lines because of the the wildfire risk, and that you know honestly is putting people putting them off the grid for longer periods of time than the blackouts did last summer. So in some ways, those are an even more severe reliability concern. But it, it's those places, I think, where we can first look for uh, some of these distributed grid or decentralized grid ideas, you know, people supplying their own power effectively uh, to, to take hold. Uh, so I think, you know, next, com- next few years, we'll, we'll see more and more of this. and It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. All right. Well, it gives us uh, perhaps plenty to talk about in another podcast. So, so, so thank you, uh, th- thank you both for joining. Uh, this is helpful perspective, and we'll, uh, I suppose, keep our fingers crossed moving into uh, in August coming out of an already extreme summer. Thanks, so. Thanks, so. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.